Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Uh, I'm your host, Zoe, and today I'm with Gregory Uze-Lotz in Brooklyn. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, Thank you. And yeah, would you mind introducing yourself? Where are you from? How old are you? All right, yeah. Uh, I am 29 years old. I am born and raised in New York City. Uh, though that's always a weirder question to answer because I feel like I almost didn't in a sense. Both my parents aren't from here, so I had a lot of foreign influence as well. But I think that's a very New York City upbringing. And where, where are your parents from? My father was born in what's now Serbia, at the time Yugoslavia, and left for Toronto, Canada when he was around eight, I think. And then grew up in Toronto until the 70s when he came for uh, graduate school. And then he came back again later to immigrate. And then my mother is from South Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's from Johannesburg. And she came in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, yeah, and hasn't left. I mean, we've been going back to South Africa since I was a child. But yeah. So did you grow up with a lot of like Serbian influence? or Way more South African and specifically South African Jewish influence. It's like a very niche I was gonna say this. existence. I didn't yeah. really know that existed. What, yeah. what, is, what is that like? So, I mean, this is irrelevant to the rest of the podcast, but why not? Um, so in the mid to late 1800s, basically two villages worth of Jews left from kind of what's now Lithuania mm-hmm. and went to South Africa when there was the gold and diamond rush. And uh, that included my great grandfather. Yes. And... Um, and yeah, ever since then, there's been, you know, multiple generations of South African Jews. Um, <clears throat> and uh, now the community is a little bit smaller, a lot of emigration to the United States, to the UK, to Australia, and to Israel, and then other pockets here and there. But uh, yeah, at one point, it was definitely several hundred thousand strong I mean, between all the major cities, for the most part. So... My grandfather was a Cape Tonian, and my grandmother was from Johannesburg, and then ended up my my mom and her siblings were born in Johannesburg. So, yeah, that's so interesting. And then you grew up in New York. Um, did you go to one of like the private schools? Did you have you could whole... say you could say one of the prep schools, one of the what was that? What was that reality show? Gossip Girl. No, it wasn't. Well, there was Gossip Girl. Maybe this is a little too. This is so embarrassing that this is like a thing that dates me, but there was a show called NYC prep. I don't know. It was garbage. Um, <laughs> but I knew some of those kids and I knew kids that were like consultants for, <laughs> for it, but it was a reality show about kids going to New York city private schools. And did you, would you say your upbringing aligned with it at all? My upbringing did not align or with your school it, experience but my social upbringing definitely was adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was very New York in the sense of I grew up in Yorkville, which now kind of just gets Mm -hmm. globbed into the Upper East Side. Um, At the time, there was a definite, like, Lexington was the class border, I think, for for a lot of us. Not, like, dramatically. Um, But there was a difference between people that grew up on Park and Madison and Fifth and then people who grew up on Third and Second and First New York. Um, 
so I grew up there, but I went to school from age three to 15 on the Upper West Side. Okay. And then I went to camp, so I knew kids that were from other schools. Yeah. And then I played some sports, and then, which is a bit of an overstatement, but um, <laughs> I was forced to play some sports. Um, and then when I went to high school, it was in Brooklyn Heights. And so that kind of grew the map even more. And there were a lot of kids in my high school that were from downtown Manhattan. So I spent a lot of time in the West Village in high school in Williamsburg before it became what it is now. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, and it's, it's very much a networking kind of upbringing from ninth through 10th grade. Your social life is a lot of loitering, <laughs> just walking the streets of whatever neighborhood yeah. that is most convenient for everybody. And then uh, that's how you meet all these people and you end up going to people's houses and things. And so it was definitely really interesting. Like I, it, I wonder in the end how much it plays a part in how I am now that I did not have an apartment that could host friends really not because of any kind of like embarrassment, just like size wise, there wasn't the same privacy Mm -hmm. where like I could be with my friends to just like know that there weren't parents listening or present. Yeah. Um, and so I was one of the, t- and this is definitely the case. You were either a kid that like never hosted or usually hosted. Mm-hmm. And so I was a never hosting kid. And so I was always meeting different people and seeing the city from a lot of different angles. That's kind of nice though. I feel like it definitely gives you a sense of maturity that's unique to people who grew up in New York or yeah. Some people grew up in New York, I guess. And then where did you go end up going to college after high school in Brooklyn? So I went to Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois uh, from 2009 to 2013. I was a double major in, get ready for all the words, uh, radio, TV, film, and Asian language and civilization with a focus in South Asia. And then I also had a certificate in creative writing for media. Wow. So it was a lot of things on the final diploma, um, but it all was because I was this weird kid that knew exactly what he wanted to do going into college, which I'm not currently doing. So there's an irony to that, but um, I wanted to work in Bollywood. Oh, well, there there you go. Okay, now I get it. That's where the colors definitely still come into play So in my work. Did you do art in college or was that something you developed or a passion for later on? So where to begin on this? Um, I, the beginning of me creatively is that I loved movies for sure. Mm -hmm. And I loved storytelling. Just movies were the most accessible at the time and particularly animated movies and shows and things like that. And I wanted to be a cartoonist before I wanted to be anything else. Like comics and cartoons were kind of the first thing that I really, and just, I don't know, I was writing stories, but with a very visual edge to it. I was always drawing things with the Mm storylines. And even like as a little, little kid, and also ending up as like an early teen, I was big with Legos, but I wouldn't just have Legos to build the thing. I would use Legos in this very kind of storytelling way. And I would be constantly changing this giant display of Legos to have a story that clearly only I in my head understood. Um, But that developed in a way because 
my parents are immigrants and they wanted me to, you know, live out the American dream. And I think what I've come to learn is that they had a very simplistic idea of how it worked, where it was just like, yeah, obviously you, you know, especially in New York city, like you mold a child to be this like amazing CV of things. Yeah. And then they go to a good American university and then that's it. Like, that's all you got to do especially at the American schools where they all make connections and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so my childhood, while pretty free, like I wasn't, I wasn't the typical first generation kid, but it was very much like the goal is a good college. Yeah. Um, and so every time I picked up a passion, it was, there was always a little bit of a molding or a curbing by my family to make it, a little more prestigious. Yeah, like good on a resume, kind of. Yeah, or like something you actually could put on a resume because playing with Legos is not yeah. something you can do on <laughs> that a college would care about. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead in the story, but so let's see. I was cartooning. I, you know, my parents were very supportive. They let me do cartooning classes at the 92nd Street Y, which is on uh, 92nd and Lexington. And you know, very encouraging in storytelling. My dad was a really great, like, imaginative storyteller, and my mom is very organized. So it was great that, like, he could inspire me and build up my confidence, and my mom could find a way for it, like, to have an output. Mm-hmm. Um, but it slowly became more and more kind of pre-professional. I was taking classes at Parsons on weekends when I was, like, 11 years old. And... I think a big switch happened. So I was born with scoliosis. And so by age 10, I'd had three major spinal surgeries. And when I was 10, I was homeschooled for a month because I couldn't really, I didn't have mobility. And in that time, I kind of like, I picked up this game that's all about uh, you assemble and paint the models yourself. And it's like a tabletop war game. Shout out to anybody that knows what Warhammer is out there listening. But I got really into that and I loved all of the story of it. I never actually learned all the rules of the game. It's very complex. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, but even more. And there's actual tangible things you have to paint. And the art that went along with all of the lore and things was amazing. And I was obsessed with it. And my mom, my mom was definitely like the go-getter person and so everything that was how do I raise a kid in New York City or how do I kind of mold my child was based off of what her girlfriends suggested with their kids that were maybe a little bit older Mm -hmm. Um, and it was very much like that South African Jewish connection all these moms kind of um, and a lot of them lived in Scarsdale New York so it was a much more cookie cutter upbringing there I think but so (laughs) you know like my mother heard from a friend that her daughter was taking painting courses on the Upper East Side with this professional. It was like a very serious course and things like that. And it's like, well, that seems more prestigious. Now, I don't know if my mother was conscious of that, but now that I process it, I think that that was definitely a huge part of it. Yeah. And so I remember going to kind of like interview with this painter and bringing these models of like orcs and things. And it's like, my mom ever being the like proud Jewish mother was like, look, look how he paints these things. And it's like, what is this painter who does still lifes basically like Matisse and, and Monet? Like what is, what is she going to get from a painting of like, I don't know, a cannon and like a guy with spears. 
nonetheless, she saw potential. I don't really know how or why, probably just for the the money. <laughs> sure. um, I can say now as a, as a painter at this age, like, yeah, I, I teach a kid no matter what, if the pay was good, I guess you never know what you could inspire in them. But so I was taken on as a student at age 10 and then I studied painting twice a week. I want to say after school with her and the rest of this class. Yeah. Until I was 15 years old. Um, and that's where a lot of my foundations came into play. Um, and now because that's like, that's the bedrock of it now really cutting the story short about age 15, I basically came to the conclusion that I wasn't a good artist. I wasn't able to do photorealism um, like my peers. And especially, I find this is a trend. People think that art that looks like real life is good. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the psychology is behind that. But especially when you're younger, especially when you're a kid, if you can draw a thing that looks accurate, it's considered good. I guess it depends, like, I mean, beauty's in the eye of the bullhorn kind of thing, but I can see that especially when you're, you know, in a very, I guess, conservative kind of drawing class or, I mean, I'm making assumptions, but as opposed to... No, I mean, we were doing still lifes over and over. Like, I don't ever want to paint a gourd again. (laughs) So many seasonal fruits. Um, (laughs) But, you know, and that's the thing is, like, once we were given the option to do something for our final piece. And I wanted to do like, I had this weird image of a door opening and a tiger coming out of it. I don't know why, but that's just this thing I had in my head and I really wanted to make it happen. And I just couldn't do a tiger that looked real. And I thought that meant that I was not good and that I wasn't meant to do this. Um, And it was amplified by the competitiveness of New York city. Yeah. I was applying to high schools, which is a thing a lot of us have to do. I really wanted to get into this very artsy focused school in Brooklyn Heights um, called St. Anne's. And uh, you have to go in with your portfolio. They rejected me. And that I've only realized this in the past year. I think that actually was when I felt rejected as a painter. And so all of that just kind of went into hiding. And I focused solely on movies, which was fun for me. I never really thought of it as anything beyond just like just solid fun. And I just worked on making movies and writing movies until I got to college. And that kept going. But I kind of painted in the shadows. Yeah. Um, And I think that kind of on topic with this show, painting and drawing became until about 2016 solely therapeutic. Oh, really? Yeah. I was going to say, did you harbor any kind of like resentment or sadness when you felt that rejection? Probably. I can't trace back to it now. I mean, the irony is that I ended up going to their kind of rival school, Mm -hmm. um, which had a wonderful arts program that I never took advantage of. Yeah. It's so interesting to think back and think of things that, you know, you could have done or incorporated into your life. But I mean... Obviously, you are where you are today with the path that you went down. So I guess you said in 26, up until 2016, art was just your way of therapy. What types of things did you paint? Like when would you paint at school or? 
I painted in college and the face that shows up in a lot of my work there's a particular face or like a style of drawing a face that probably originated late high school i'd have to really look through all my notebooks and try and find it but it became this just it was always showing up in college i was just doodling and then i would have these watercolor paintings and i was using the techniques that i learned as a kid and I was adapting them to what I felt most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, sometimes it was, you know, sometimes I would still do, and I do it for myself now too, still lifes again, a lot of flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm drawn to color yeah, and, and I process emotions through color and, and contour and, and the way that a brush stroke is laid onto paper. And so, yeah, sometimes it would be solely abstract. There was a lot of experimentation. I was going through old, paintings that, that are at my parents' house the other day. And there's stuff I do not like that I would not do now, but it was just interesting to see where I was at. There's a lot of journaling. So if you go through old journals of mine, you can find a lot of just a lot of ink sketching and drawings within the actual entries. So kind of like in yeah. the margins and and if there's a paragraph break and things like that. Um but I don't know. It was usually for like sadder things. Yeah. Um, I definitely can tell you that in like 2014, 2015, definitely 2015, it was a lot of like heartbreak paintings and just like being sad and like coping with sadness and, um, and just like maybe not having, I mean, there's so much more to it and I'm sure that kind of, as we talk more about New York itself and being here as a professional, like the loneliness of it and not being able to really just like let all of your emotions out that you're feeling. There's a lot of bottling up that happens just because you're so busy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted an outlet for that. That wasn't just um, words on a page. And so a lot of that, earlier work from 2015, 2014, 2015 is just like, there's a lot of just like vomiting color and just like, like people unable to, and it's still a a kind of a motif in my work, like literally being unable to keep all of the things you're feeling inside. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's how it manifested at the time. That's so interesting. I also keep a journal, obviously, but I don't have the art ability that you possess. Well, so. I'll stop you there. I'll, I'll say this now. And like for any listeners of this is that um, you can do the old phrase that art is in the eyes of the beholder and all that kind of stuff. But I, as I've become more professional with this practice of art and I've made it my full focus I've done a lot of everything that I did when studying film and the theory behind it. I've now basically done my own BFA and just so much reading and writing papers for no one and a lot of theorizing about making art. And I now have a definition of what art is, which most people say you can't define it. But my definition is that it is simply, I'm going to make it really unromantic, but it is an externalization of something internal. That's what art is. People can either like it or not. Um, You might not even like it, but the fact that you're taking something that literally only you are going to be able to comprehend 100% 
and you're sharing it with other people, that makes it art. And art is this, it's a vehicle, it is a tool that we have to kind of share these things that really are inexplainable in, in their full kind of pure form. So we do the next best thing, which is creatively manifest them. So even if you don't think you have the ability, you could still be making art that could connect with someone that someone could see themselves in. And that's more important than doing it professionally, I think. Yeah, no, I love that. And I mean, in a sense, it can be applied to different types of forms of art, like dance or, I don't know, poetry and spoken word. I think it goes beyond that. I mean, that's why I say that if you have a baker that like they really love what they do and every croissant that they make in a morning is a mode of expression. Even if it's like, you're not thinking while you're doing it, but you're at home and you cook, you're at home. The way that you clean your house could be creative and artistic Mm -hmm. in that you're not just doing a chore. You are, you're putting a piece of yourself into the action. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, it's um that's why I feel like there's that phrase I mean it's an art or I don't know if it's a phrase or a quote or what it is but it makes a lot of sense okay I'm gonna take a quick break and then I want to talk to you more about specifically the project you're working on and yeah sure okay so I'm just gonna quickly read the event description of your exhibit alone together from Facebook before we dive right into the questions about it so it says A 2018 study reported that half of all Americans suffer from loneliness. In Alone Together, Uze Latz explores the tragic irony of the internet in an isolation epidemic. So obviously this is pretty on brand with my podcast in terms of the intersection of like, or the irony rather of everyone being lonely and then but ironically, since everyone's lonely, you're all together in that loneliness. And I yeah. know obviously what inspired a podcast. So I was wondering, you know, what made you make that the theme of your exhibit? I'm trying to think really where the, the beginnings of it started for this exhibition, but that has been a theme in my work probably from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I more or less gave up on visual art as a career ambition or a main form of expression when I was 15 years old. I just didn't think that I was good enough, uh, which I feel like is kind of part of it as well, part of this whole team. But um, I don't think it was demoted per se, but art became solely a form of like therapy. It was yeah. purely therapeutic. And it remains therapeutic, and I advise anybody to pick up some kind of creative thing for therapeutic purposes. Um, But so kind of the genesis of my entire art practice was dealing with feelings of isolation, of loneliness, of rejection, of sadness, uh, which then over time kind of just started to get built up more as I started to understand my mental health more and the differences between the emotionality and the actual medical side of it, the actual mental illness side, depression, anxiety versus I feel sad because this thing happened or I feel disappointed. And 
really kind of learning the nuances between different negative and positive emotions and understanding my own, just my, my entire emotional spectrum and representing it visually. Um, and like, you know, and you go back into my work from the very beginning, um, besides the flowers, <laughs> the color is always there and there's usually flowers or something that imitates uh, kind of plant life because of how I was trained. Um, but it's, there's this face that shows up a lot and, and a lot of people always wonder if it's a smiling face, if it's like a, like a grimace, if it's something negative or positive. And it's always, it's almost always both. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of kind of smiling through pain or being in pain while actually being happy, the fact that we're these two things at once and it's possible to be two things at once. <laughs> that became a big theme. And then you know, it just evolved more and more. I'm back in New York. I'm dealing with everything in that way. I left New York in 2014, which gave me the ability to look at the entire experience of coming back to my, my place of growing up. But as an adult, now I got to look at it kind of through a fishbowl lens. Yeah. And a lot of what enabled me to do all of that and actually kind of gave me the full confidence to get back to visual art was the internet okay. and how that tool has changed over the past six years is tremendous. And I started noticing more and more that the border between kind of the real world and the world of the internet started to blur mm -hmm. and ever since university, I've been really interested in this, but I started noticing that kind of the digital world, the way that we communicate on the internet was bleeding into how we were communicating or rather not communicating in person. And so, yeah, that study is alarming. There've been more studies like that a little bit before and definitely now, you know, they keep calling it the loneliness epidemic. Yeah. I've seen that on time magazines. And it's, and it's real and it's serious. True. And I think what makes it so, um, I think what makes it not necessarily, I mean, it's urgent, but what I think is what gives me hope about it is that like, it actually is almost literally existential because loneliness, now they're trying to kind of like create this medical approach to it. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a feeling, uh, that can take that kind of, you know, you can, get depressed from being lonely. You can get anxious from being lonely, but the loneliness itself is something that everybody feels at some point. Yeah. Um, not everybody who feels sad sometimes actually has depression, but everyone's felt lonely at some point in their lives. And some people feel more lonely than others. And so we have this common spot or this common root of an issue that then has all of these offshoots that cause problems in society. Yeah. Um, and when we can peel it back or when we can trace it back just to this loneliness thing, I actually think that we can solve it far more. And so when I was figuring out what I wanted to do in this exhibition, I was looking at the work that I was making at the time. I, the whole exhibition came together quite quickly. Um, and I want to give a shout out to Kareem Othman, 
and beyond Brooklyn Gallery for giving me the opportunity. Um, and I just thought, okay, clearly the, the through lines, everything I've been doing over the past several years has been this idea of, of people are feeling really alone and what's that making them do? And when it's combined with things, what is it making them do? So the way that people talk to each other on the internet is really interesting to me. The way that people express themselves on the internet is really interesting because being online is, unless I guess you're kind of surrounded by friends at a computer, which I feel like nobody does anymore. Not anymore, yeah. That's like a very, that's that's like a very like, that's an AOL yeah, ad yeah, yeah. from 1998 <laughs> where the family's crowded around and you hear that dial tone, but like Omegle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I could go down an entire rabbit hole about Omegle and the, the themes of that. Um, oh my God, bringing back gruesome memories. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, it, being online is a pretty solitary activity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yet so, you're kind of together with everyone. It's so ironic. Yeah. You, when you're talking to a person in real life, there are two people involved in that situation mm -hmm. next to them. Um, and I mean, one could say this about being on the phone, though I think that the phone is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but when you're at a computer, you are in your own station, the other person on the other end, even so that even if you are communicating with someone else, they're in their own box. And this this barrier of the screen is up and people, people handle it in different ways. Some people see it as a, as a total shield of anonymity, which I think is, is also bullshit. Yeah. Um, you reveal a lot more about what's buried down deep inside through that lens. It's not a shield. It's not a mask. It's not a cover. It is a lens or a prism. And it is a, usually a very dark warping prism. Yeah. I feel like if anything that animate, and, oh my gosh, I'm going to butcher this word. Anonym, anonymity reveals more about who you are as a person than anything. I mean, it reminds me of all those, you know, studies with looking at Google searches and finding the correlations between what people search on the internet and hate speech and Absolutely. things like that. But at the same time, going back to the exhibition, and this is why there's so much color and there's, there's a sense of humor to it. And it's not, and I use written words within my work and, not every one of them is just like, oh, I'm I'm lonely and sad. I'm not a, I'm not a song by the Cure, uh, mm -hmm. as much as I do kind of generate that vibe sometimes. Um, it's more it, it's it's more that just things get warped through being on the internet through this 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 bizarre almost um, oxymoronical situation where we are alone together. Where yeah. I, I have to be by myself in order to talk to you on Skype. I have to be by myself in order to play a video game with you. Like that's people don't necessarily play split screen on the same TV anymore. For example, like Fortnite. Um, that game was massive. It's starting to kind of subside as a trend. Yeah, as is with most things with kids. Um, Pokemon Go is another one that's been pretty big. And it's not just, I'm not blaming video games at all. I think actually video games are very helpful in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is you have to be on your own computer to play Fortnite with your friends. So everybody 
leaves yeah, each other. To be, oh yeah, that's so weird. So it's like, oh, I'll see you on Fortnite later. But well, I have to. Why not hang out together yeah. as well? And so there are all these tools, and there's a whole culture around the internet and the things that permeate from digital culture. And that's what I'm saying. It bleeds into real life. The way that people talk to each other, or rather, don't talk to each other, yeah. is very much how we operate online. Um, people don't talk to strangers as much anymore, which I think is a combination of a lot of fear mongering in general in the media. It's also ironic, though, because I mean, in many ways, we do talk to strangers. Well, that's that's the weirdest yeah. part. Is like, oh, I'll talk to a stranger if, if I'm by myself. The screen, yeah. I I'll mean, make a new friend if I'm alone. It's weird too. I mean, one thing I, I'm just thinking about now that you say, you know, that whole idea of needing to be alone in order to communicate with others is like, I don't know about you, but I have friends who won't, don't like to call, don't like to FaceTime, only text. Whereas like, I'm the first person to just be texting someone and immediately pick up my phone to call. And then that way too, I mean, you, you can, you can't really be FaceTiming more than one person. I feel like that's the closest digital way we have to have a one-on-one conversation yeah. at this day and age. Whereas you can be texting like eight people at the same time. If you're, you know, really social, yeah. or like have not social, but like have those communications. So it's weird. You're right. Like how we like to isolate ourselves to initiate these conversations and kind of the the last element that makes its way into the exhibition is the performative um element to i I feel like every time i use the word society even though i absolutely mean it someone's just rolling their eyes (laughs) but there is this entirely performative element of society now that is it is embedded it's no longer like some people like to perform and some people don't People subconsciously are performing, and uh, I mean, I'll, I'll cite my actual source on this. Bo Burnham talked about this years ago. He's the, the comedian that I mean, he's more than a comedian now. He's a very talented director and writer, but he came to light because of YouTube. He was of that generation of entertainers that got their break because of YouTube mm-hmm. in its early stages, and so he's very, very acutely aware of what the internet can do and how people operate on it, et cetera. And that performing, that Mm -hmm. sharing through social media. And he was talking about how basically, particularly people in our age bracket, whether it's kind of like early thirties down to now kids for sure are conditioned in a way, whether it's academically, you have to be the best or it's um, popularity in high school or whatever it is. But it's like, it, it's, I'm going to butcher his comments, but he was talking about how we were taught, like, you've got to perform, you got to perform, and everything is about being this kind of performance out there and putting yourself out there in this performative way where you're supposed to do something in order to get a reaction. You're not doing it for yourself. Yeah. You're doing it in order to get a response. And now there are all these tools that say, now you can perform all the time whenever you want. There's something in your pocket that you walk around with that if you want, whether it's Snapchat or TikTok or Instagram, you can, and it's weird as an artist or a writer, I think, because there are people that will say, oh, I never want to do the arts, that, that literally 
do on a very basic level what I do professionally, which is try to make a thing for others. So making an entertaining Instagram story might be how you think you're communicating with your friends, but you're communicating with followers Mm -hmm. and the whole device and the whole system that's there in place makes your relationships about, it it doesn't make it fully, um, uh, reciprocal. Um, it makes it, uh, tit for tat. It makes it, 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 it's like, I'm putting this out there because I want the likes or I want the response. Um, that's why I, I, I love entertainers and how I'm on Instagram as an artist because my Instagram is not personal as it might seem. Everything is there deliberately for performance. Yeah. If you want to know me, if you want to get to know me, if you want to talk with me, if you want to know how I'm really feeling, call me. Yeah. And then let's go get coffee. So true. Yeah, uh, it is weird to think about. I want to be with you in person if I'm going to talk to you about and then, and I mean, I'll talk to people through lots of digital channels um, because I want to reach my friends who are far away, but I would more than cultivating or like creating some content to show other people your quote unquote life. Well, I mean, so a part of why my work took on this, this form with these little excerpts uh, that will either be sampled from I mean, for me, and this is a whole tangent I could go down, but I use the Hebrew Bible a lot in my work for a lot of different reasons. Um, But I will also use English phrases and things, whether it's from pop culture or it's a joke of my own writing. But they're kind of out of context. They're floating around in these worlds where they're like dreams and things are more abstract because I'm trying to... I'm trying to give them to people where you I'm giving them to you to figure out what you want to do with them. Yeah. Um, because everything now, like the Facebook status, you think you're expressing yourself, but you're doing it for an audience. Your followers are an audience, whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. Um, and maybe that is my, just my personal view, but after kind of all the different little, adventures I've gone through um, working in digital advertising for a period of time and being on the other end of that, literally designing the content, the worst word ever. I was, I was thinking that actually when you were talking about, you know, all of this performative things that are becoming, you know, ingrained in the life, like the life of influencers and whatnot, that word content I feel has been used more in the past year and a half than ever before and that's when, and that's kind of what i try to address in a lot of my work and with this show is that the things that you love and that you generate in the world and that you put out there shouldn't be content it should be the things that you like yeah and you should have agency over them and you also shouldn't be selling yourself um and that's this weird thing that happens especially in new york is you're out there in the workforce, you're out there going out, which people go out less and less and less, mind you. And when Mm -hmm. people go out, they go out with their friends and that's it. So it's like, I'm going to take my bubble with me. Yeah. Uh, Which is ridiculous. But people. Yeah. But so you're going out there and you're in this hyper competitive city. Um, Though I also think a little bit of that competition is psychosomatic. I think people think that 
into competition because it's this idea that's been thrown out there when actually a lot of the people that ultimately succeed the most are the ones who feel most comfortable in their skin and what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's true. And when they're actually passionate about what it is and they treat themselves right. And that doesn't mean I'm going to make sure I go to Soul Cycle after I put in an exorbitant amount of time at the office. Just because it's healthy doesn't mean you're doing it in a healthy way. Yeah, that's um, true. And, but, but so that here are these things, whether it's like, I want my, my branded gym and these are the things I have to do to make my life work out. Ultimately you decide those things. And, and when everybody is trying to do the perfect thing and competing for who's being the best at, at living, which it, no one's perfect. So no one's going to be perfect at living but when everybody's trying to do that you're just performing mm-hmm. and that comes from the internet in my mind um that comes from somebody gave us a tool 10 12 years ago where they asked what was the original facebook prompt where what? it's just like your name is blank yeah or like how are you feeling or something like that well even something like a comment section yeah is a pretty I mean, it's a pretty revolutionary thing, and I think ultimately it proved that it was a bad revolution. But, like, why why should I be able to comment on this article? Like, ultimately, what good does it do that I have an opinion to share with who knows who? Mm -hmm. Letters to the editor are very specific. But these comments, it's like, you know who else is reading those? Other people who are searching to connect with someone and we're just alone together. We're all angsty and wanting a connection and wanting a community, but we're wasting it in the digital space. Yeah. On a somewhat related note, um, one thing I find really interesting and I would love to hear your thoughts on it are difference if there is one or the connection between loneliness and being alone like whether you can be whether they're one and the same so i i used to have this like i used to love one thing i used to love about myself was that i thought that i could be alone without being lonely so like in the summer of i think 2016 i was living in new york and turning and I lived by myself. I didn't really have any friends living here and I would just, you know, go on runs and go to museums by myself, get a drink by myself. And I was a hundred percent by myself, but I was never lonely. Like I loved my life. And then I kind of had this horrible break era, not breaking point, but, um, this almost realization I was like, maybe I was wrong when I moved back to the city after college, I was so excited to, you know, have that autonomy again. And I ended up being with more people in New York than I had ever been before. And yet I was so lonely and I, you know, I, it made me realize like, maybe that's not true. Maybe that maybe being alone means you're being lonely. I mean, um, granted, like I was in a terrible living situation. I was really struggling with my mental health and I 
luckily got out of it. a gaslighting situation? Oh, 150%. And I didn't know that because I was so, you know, my mental health was so, or I was so chemically imbalanced. And once I actually addressed that and got on medication and like things have been better, obviously now, but I think it's, I don't know. I just think it's really a weird, I don't know the word, but what are your thoughts on like those, the connection between the, two, the well, three, I guess? Right, like it seems like a paradox, that title, like, you know, I'm definitely being cheeky when I call an exhibition alone together and I'm writing it like, like an internet talk. Yeah, using like a number, mm-hmm. you know, Cause that's the thing is I, I, I have grown up with the internet and I'm very embedded in like be it Reddit or meme culture or all these kind of things, whatever. Um, and for any listeners, never 4chan. I've actually never been on that website and I never, ever want to experience that side of the internet because it's just too horrifying. But, but yeah, you pose a really interesting question that I think about a lot. And I do think there's a huge difference. Um, I think it's way less about the optics or the, the, the physical. <laughs> very long. But it's way less about the the physical um, embodiment of loneliness. Like, yes, you can go around doing everything solitarily, just being by yourself. But being by yourself is not being alone, per se. Um, I think what makes loneliness in a city like New York, I'm sure London is like this. L.A. might be like this, but L.A. is its own thing because everybody's driving. Yeah. Um, and it's so spread out. But any major city... Um, and you know, I have a feeling that a small town is like this too. I've only spent time living in a suburb of Illinois really. And Mm -hmm. that's a college town. So it's different, but, but this could also contribute to why there are such high rates of suicide in colleges and universities is that when you're feeling lonely, which can come from mental health issues or can come from just, you are in relationships due to necessity or peer pressure and not because you want to. And that makes you feel lonely, but you're surrounded by people constantly. It amplifies yeah, that it's loneliness. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. And it makes you feel so much worse because it's one thing for me to live in my, my apartment by myself, which I have been very fortunate to do. And I don't have my friends around because they're all busy I would really love to go out, but I don't feel comfortable going by myself to play to a place. And I do feel lonely as I sit in my apartment and I watch more Love Island. <laughs> Shout out to Love Island. Uh, Love Island. That's another podcast we'll start. Exactly. Um, that's me feeling lonely by myself. Um, if I were to go out and walk down the street where I see a lot of, like, I live near a fair amount of bars and like half in an area. Um, what am I like 70 that I call it a half <laughs> but um, if I walk down the street and I see all these people having a great time it makes it so much worse yeah and it's very easy so right. to see people well now here's where there's so many layers to this and this not to get back to talking about my work but this is why my technique is what it is it's all based on layers if I'm trying to tell a story Literally, how time works is similar to how our emotions play out, and something like this plays out. It's layer upon layer upon layer, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. Here I am. This is a, a very realistic hypothetical. I walk down Flushing Avenue and I pass a bunch of bars and I see a bunch of people having a great time. But that's me feeling lonely 
thinking they are having a great time. Yeah. Whereas they could also be feeling lonely because the people they're out with actually aren't their close friends and they miss their close friends. And it's so easy to get caught in those traps. And I feel like the remedy to that is first off an awareness that there is a difference between being lonely and being alone. Um, because I, I will also do that same exact walk and I'll be happy as all else because mm-hmm. that's like, yeah, I'm having a great day. Um, and that's usually because I have been with friends. Like everybody needs their alone time. If you spend no time alone, that's also a problem. Yeah. Um, you need to treat yourself You need to be better. comfortable with, the, with being alone. Yeah. And part of, you know, that's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? Where yeah. it's like, what comes first? Your comfort with being alone or learning about loneliness, or do they happen at the same time? But I think that once you recognize what loneliness feels like, it's not just like, oh, I need to go get drunk tonight because it's Friday. No, you actually, you don't really necessarily want to do that. And there are times where, sure, people do. Go for it. But there are a lot of times where people self-sabotage because they just feel lonely and they aren't aware of it or they don't want to admit it because like I have tons of friends. How could I be lonely? Exactly. I work with tons of people. How could I possibly be lonely? And yeah. Everyone's in some way or another feeling the same. Yeah. I mean, everyone it's, it's possible for everyone. I actually, I try not to be cynical and think like everybody feels this negative thing. I like to think that there is like one person <laughs> who doesn't and we can all aspire to that. Yeah. But believe me, they've got their own flaws in exactly. another way. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break, then I want to ask you a final question about your exhibition. Sure. Okay, so before I end with the final questions I ask, um, I was wondering, I mean, obviously, or I'm making an assumption here, but I imagine that artists don't give any expectations for what the people take away from their exhibitions or their art but given that your exhibition is called alone together and it's kind of I mean the theme is obviously about the irony of being lonely despite everyone also being lonely what do you hope people take away from it I think that for a long time now no matter what the format has been the one thing that i encourage through my work is just more emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, my work, particularly my writing used to be, and still is very much about actual like intelligence in that sense of like trying to teach you about world events and, and social movements and things. It was very deliberately kind of sociopolitical, um, even if it was more subtext. Mm-hmm. Uh, And ever since 2016, which is also when this whole art practice really exploded and people, you know, it's, it's one thing that I felt confident to start doing it more, but it's also because people started receiving it and were encouraging me to keep working and doing what I was doing. Um, and I've always been as quiet as I can be or talkative as I can be. I've always been very in touch with my emotions Yeah, and I, sometimes it can make life really hard because I'm sensitive, but by and large, it's a skill and 
it's a skill that helps me navigate problems and it helps me navigate relationships with people. And I think that everyone could use a little bit more emotional intelligence. Sim- like the simple ability to know what you're feeling at the moment. Um, and then you handle it however you want, I guess. You know, I don't want to tell people how to live their lives. But if you're feeling sad, allow yourself to be sad. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's the same thing with internet things and pop culture and politics. There's so many things that we can glom onto or use as a mask to cover basic emotions. Some people, and I'm talking it, and I don't want to put down anybody's diagnoses or issues. Mental health is a high priority for me. But some people aren't actually depressed. They're just sad. They're just feeling really, really sad. And for some reason now, there's more shame about just feeling a thing Mm -hmm. than having a medical reason behind it. And I think it's because people don't allow themselves to feel things. When I am, when I have a spiral into depression, I have medication for that because that is a chemical imbalance in my body. Mm -hmm. And my mentality is not, let me just ride this out. Yeah. I'm being irresponsible if I, if I do that. But if I'm, you know, I have friends recently that have gone through breakups and I've gone through breakups or heartbreak of any kind. I've learned the hard way. You have to let yourself feel sad about it. And if you're frustrated at someone, while you shouldn't take out your anger on people, you should allow yourself to be frustrated. Write it down in a journal. Go draw something. Go get a meal that you like. Don't be too cruel to your arteries, but like, you know, do something that allows you to feel the thing you want to do, especially happiness. And, you know, yes, alone together is very much about our negative emotions and the things that we don't allow ourselves to feel on the negative spectrum. But the reason that I use bright colors and stuff is because happiness is always there too. Like you might not see it at the moment, but it's clearly there and it's clearly available and it's not just on you. I think that there's a problem there that is there, there's this narrative that like the self care narrative is really flawed in a way that like it's our responsibilities to be better and feel better. No, we need each other for that. And we need the world around us for that too, which means that the thing that we're craving or we need, or that we hopefully can just enjoy is right around the corner. It's just not only with us and we're going to need another person. We're just like, not literally another person, but people around us to feel that again. And when you're emotionally intelligent about your life, particularly when you're in your twenties and thirties in the internet age, I think it's, you can live a balanced life when you realize that your happiness and your sadness live in the same world, which is that real world on the internet. I don't think there's like any real positive things there because the happiness that's on the internet is extreme. And the sadness that's on the internet is extreme. And, and the anger is so extreme and it's just, it's awful. Yeah. Um, the stuff in your dreams is unattainable, obviously, because it's a dream. 
Um, but in real life, you can, you know, there's things you can touch and there's things you can feel. And we have to allow ourselves to do that. Yeah, and you more. can also talk about it. Like That's the other thing. And look, I am now, I'm just, I'm a very hyper-aware person. And I have in the past been told, like, by, like, my first grade teachers and then, like, friends that I talk ad nauseum sometimes. So thank you for telling me that. Now I'm going to be more aware. And I check in with people. Hey, am I talking to you like a therapy session right now? Because that's not my goal. You're not a therapist, and I don't want to do that to you. I want to have a conversation with you, my friend. It's, you know, it might be an awkward thing at first. Check in with your friends. If they have a negative reaction to that, maybe they're not as good of friends with you as you think. And assessing where you're at, realizing that all the pieces are out there, not just the ones you either see in front of you or the ones that you just want. They're both there. Everything is, is there together. We might all be feeling alone, but we're alone together. And if you just get rid of that loneliness part, then we're back. We're just together again. Yeah, I love that. Okay, now I'm going to ask a couple of questions that I always end by. And bring it on. Become the deep questions. Okay, so what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Um, it's, I, I hate that this is a thing that just like proves itself time and time again for people, but going through like a devastating breakup. Um, I mean, it's just awful when you have that first one. Um, but you do build yourself back up and I will take this time on the air to apologize to anybody that like knew me for a six month period in 2014 um, where I did not stop talking about it. It was the only thing on my mind, but if you gather the self-awareness, then, you know, you can handle because the next heartbreak is not necessarily that much easier or hope. You know, I don't wish this upon anyone, but maybe the next one or the next one, but it is less traumatizing. Yeah. The skills um, can And I think also, I mean, mine was a pretty, there was, there were a lot of pieces to it as well. Um, But, you know, kind of in part of what I was just saying, where you have to allow yourself to feel things. When you allow yourself to feel all things, you also can dig up the traumas that might be informing your opinions. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important to be aware of your trauma and you, those do inform the way you feel about things. but. Hopefully you learn through that pain, a sense of agency. And when you're fully, when you're fully present in what you're feeling and thinking and doing in a day to day, you can just power check yourself. Like, okay, I'm pretty sure I feel this way about this person. Absolutely. But just to be safe, why do I feel that way about them? Why do I not like that guy? Yeah, okay, yeah, no, I hate that quality about them. I think it's really gross. Or, actually, you know, it's not that bad. I don't need to hang out with him, but he's not a villain. Yeah. And you can kind of make your life not simpler, but just more stress-free in that way. Also, you know, I clearly I go on the negative side a lot, but, you know, why is this so great? When you can understand what makes you happy, oh, well, then I can 
get more of that, maybe in a simpler form. But yeah, I I want to be happy, you know, and I I can enjoy something. I mean, this might sound weird, but like a a matte finish book is just like the texture of that is so nice. Like it's not the same feeling as finishing that book that was a really good one. But you know, if I go to Barnes and Noble and I pick one up and I'm like, the the cover looks cool. Like I just enjoy that experience. I'm like, that's a cool looking book. Maybe one day I'll read that. Little moments of joy are things that I weirdly learned from going through such a like a calamity of a breakup. Yeah. Um, and and just in terms of how you treat people, that's the most important thing. I mean, I definitely grew up more from that. I became even more empathetic than that. My actual feminism was born out of that moment in a weird way. Um, and just a lot of, you know, just, just feelings about how to communicate with others. Makes sense. It's an answer I've ever gotten before. That's not <laughs> surprising. In a similar, on a similar note, do you believe everything happens for a reason? I think there's a combination mm-hmm. of things. I think that just like, you know, whether you're going to call it yin and yang or the two sides of a coin or whatever, there's a symbiotic relationship between um, full agency and destiny yeah. or fate. Um, and it's kind of hard for me to explain, but they are, they, they inform each other. And it's a chicken and an egg situation in my mind where like, it was meant for me to do this because I did it and I did it because I was meant to do it. it, They're just so intertwined. Um, And I know that sounds just like ridiculous. Probably to some, but it like when you fully get that kind of epiphany, Oh, it's like so relieving because when it comes to art, I feel totally comfortable knowing that I'm on this planet to do this, to, to tell stories. Um, and I don't have any other purpose. It's like, it is totally my destiny to, to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also because I want to keep doing it. Yeah. I don't, I don't like making things because other people tell me to do it. Like commissions are always an uncomfortable thing for me because I have no problem. I love making things for people, but when people tell me what they want exactly, I feel like it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to meet what somebody wants. Um, but I'll still do it because I can then kind of work it through my brain again. Like, no, this is what I do. This is like, this is why I'm an artist is because people can come to me and say, I like this. Do you think you can adapt to just something I would want in my house? And then of course, Hopefully, you know, we have that conversation where it's like, look, I don't know what you're envisioning, but you are trusting me to make something for you. And so I'm going to do my best to make that work for you. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't like doing a thing because I'm told to do it. Sometimes I'll bite the bullet. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely things you, there are definite, you have tos. Keep in mind, I grew up like in an inter, in an internet. Yes. In an internet home, but in an immigrant home, that's like, or you have to, you got to do this. You have to do that. Uh, fully aware of that. But you'd be surprised 
how much agency you can have in the you have tos. Um, where it's like you can, how you choose to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll go to that dinner, um, and I'll dress up nice. I'm thinking of me as like a kid. Like I'll wear that tie, but I'm gonna wear the tie that I want to wear. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you live by? There's definitely not one. Um, or like a favorite quote. thinking on this one cut around this <laughs> dead air uh okay i'll give you one that's been kind of relevant that was in my bar mitzvah torah portion that i've recently in the past few years found like extra wonderful um but uh for all of you out there that know your bible your old testament there's a moment where the patriarch Jacob is running away from his home after he's stolen the birthright from his brother, his twin brother, Esau. And um, he's completely alone. And what we know to this point about this character is that he's, he's imaginative and crafty and, and clearly smart, but he doesn't apply himself and he doesn't really know his purpose. He doesn't really have a sense of meaning in his life. And he is in the desert and he gets this rock and he uses it as a pillow and he goes to sleep and he has this dream where there are, there's a ladder or a staircase and there are angels just going up and down it. And he wakes up and he says, and so this is the quote is God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And I don't think that you have to be religious to see that you can be inspired anywhere at any time and even when you're complete well i'm trying to be inspiring car even when you're completely alone and you don't have a sense of purpose it can find you 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 can meet in the middle in the in the least expected place and it can all come together even when you weren't expecting it and, and leaving yourself open to that is really important. And that definitely, that quote, I think, channels a really important lesson that I learned maybe a few years after I graduated and I was back in New York and I'm now like bolstered by the, the emotional you know, security and intelligence I have from a breakup, moving abroad, getting jobs, getting rejected from things, et cetera, et cetera, and realizing as an artist and anybody who's making anything, this is if I can leave a message to them, it's like you are not, you cannot dictate what your masterpiece is going to be. I love that. Um, you have to keep making stuff uh, because if you think that your next project is your medium opus, um, then what was the purpose of it at all? Because if you're just doing it for one thing only, it's just like, I, I find that almost, you know, I, f- I find there's almost a, the genuineness is lost. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world dictates what your masterpiece is ultimately. And you'll find that out. And you don't know when it's going to happen. You have to leave yourself open to that. You could make the greatest thing, at least for you personally or posthumously, who knows, but the greatest thing you accomplish might be the last thing you say before you die. 
You just don't know. Yeah, that's true. It's very meta. Um, And what do you love most about yourself? Um, Self-love is hard. Uh, Sadly, it is. um, I... I think what I love most about myself is that I truly want the best for people. Um, I am definitely selfish as healthily as I can be. Um, I am jaded. I am judgmental of people. I find judgmentalism to be kind of funny actually in the, in a way that doesn't bully anyone, but um, you know, hot takes are funny sometimes. But um, push comes to shove. I just want what's best for everybody. Uh, I'm not trying to please everyone, though that often does happen. That's the negative side of it. But I just want the I want the world to be okay. Yeah, me too. What when's your birthday? October 21st. It's a Libra. Interesting. It's the last Libra. Yeah, I'm like the last Virgo or second to last. Interesting. Okay, amazing. And then my last question, which is the name of the podcast. And I mean, I imagine I, I can think of the answer that this is going to be, but how do you find solace in the city? A uh, quick answer is going to the Met once a month, if I can. Sometimes I miss it, but uh, I try to go to the Met once a month by myself. Go with a friend, though. There's no problem there. Um but like spend an hour at least at the Met um, because the Met, I know this is no longer a short answer. The Met has not just art and culture and history, but because of the melding of all of those and the different time periods, you are seeing that when you understand art in that emotional expression kind of context, you're seeing people express themselves through time. And it's still relevant today. So it's almost like being in a time machine Um, and you're just traveling in this timeless space where it's all coming together. Um, And it's just fucking cool and interesting. Um, But I guess let's see the, the longer answer. Um, Also go to like a solid hole in the wall pizza place. They're dying out, but do you have a favorite? Oh yeah. Please, do I have a favorite? I don't know, what the is it? two best pizza places in the entire galaxy. Yeah, that's right. There's one thing I'm hard and fast on. It is pizza takes as a New Yorker. Uh, fuck Chicago. I live there. I can say that. It is a pie, not a pizza. It is a tomato and cheese pie that they've got out there. One slice and you're done. Um, <laughs> no, uh, on the on the west side, TNR Pizza on 79th in Amsterdam between 79 and 78 and then on the east side um 89th and third roma pizza um those are my two spots and i love them dearly um but no uh beyond pizza and the metropolitan museum (laughs) um i find it i've i've recently found it harder to have but a really i think Finding sauce is having setting. It's hard because you can really rarely design it, but there is a way to kind of set it up where you have a night or a a day too, but having 
uh, at going out that you're open to anything happening and you just safely go with it. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, I wouldn't encourage it to necessarily be like a drunken night out. Sometimes that adds a really great edge to it. But I, I, I do this less and less because people don't talk to strangers as much anymore. But when I moved back and I was really hurting in particular, and I was living at home with my parents and I just didn't want to be home. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to stay out and have my own space because it was a little kind of closed in. If I was below 20, 23rd street or at all, like even in other in Brooklyn, I would not go home until I went to, um, uh, Oh my God. I'm not even remembering what bar it was. Um, it's on 14th street and third, which is no longer really a cool place to be, but any farthing. No, the, it's like they do also like hairstyling and nails. A beauty bar? Yes. I would go to beauty bar and I would not leave until they played Heart of Glass by Blondie. And I would meet people out and about and dance and enjoy myself. And sometimes that would lend to just like walking the streets and having conversations. When I used to travel yeah. more by myself, I would meet people and just letting yourself be open to other people and Another and and exposing yeah and exposing maybe not your vulnerabilities but just like your emotions to someone else's emotions and i mean that in a completely asexual way too i mean all the power to you if you have like a magical one night stand sure where it's like perfectly content like did that person even really exist but really like i mean i've met really amazing people whose names i cannot tell you i don't remember even what they look like, but I do remember. Yeah. And I remember just feeling seen and seeing the other person. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for thank you. letting me interview you and telling me about your project and your life. Um, where can everyone follow you, see your art, go to visit your art. So as of right now, I don't know when this is going up, but uh, if you are in the New York area until December 31st, Alone Together is at Beyond Brooklyn Gallery, which is underneath Brooklyn Only Foods on 78 Henry Street in Brooklyn Heights. And then um, I will have shows and other debuts of pieces in the coming months. So follow me on Instagram at Greg Uzelats. That's at G-R-E-G. U-Z-E-L-A-C uh, on Instagram. My website is gbuzelots.com and um, and yeah, uh, that's where you can see me being silly and serious all at the same time. Amazing. Well, thank you again and bye everyone. Thanks. <laughs> what I think is most interesting about Love Island and I think we talked about this before is that like there's 50 episodes it's, it's ridiculous. It's how, literally every day. How much there is. And, you know, they tell you, like, I've been here for eight weeks, which, like, I'm sure a lot of shows have that kind of a shooting schedule, too. But, like, eight weeks in one house, like, on Mallorca, I guess. I'm, like, I'm sure they get to leave and go to the grocery store or whatever the fuck it is. But, you think? Like, I feel like they don't, though. Well, it kind of feels like that. Like, I definitely get the sense of, like, they have not seen the outside world. I know they're not allowed to look at their phones. Because yeah. they show at the end when they get all the messages. But, like... It's, and also, it's like, I mean, I remember going to camp for like two weeks 
and thinking it was the longest time of my life. Yeah. It, because in those kind of situations, our life is just extended. Well, because, eight weeks of camp, I remember only when I was 15 did I start to realize like eight weeks is not actually that long. It feels so long. But it, it, like, oh man, when you're 12 years old and you're there for like eight weeks, it's like, it I mean, just summer in general used to feel yeah. like an eternity. And now, I mean, this past summer sucked. I hated this past summer. There was never really any nice weather. Yeah, it was too okay. humid or it was cold. Um, it was just gross. Um, but yeah, like summer comes and goes now for me. Whereas when I was a kid, it was just like, yeah, because it was like isolated in the sense that it was different than your routine. And Love Island kind of feels like that because yeah. I mean, I guess it's just the nature of Mallorca, but like it rains like once during that whole show. Meanwhile, the American one, they're in Fiji. Fiji. It's like so always second raining. season of Australian. <laughs> They, the first season of Australia, they were in Mallorca. Yeah. And then second season, they're in Fiji, so their budget must have run out. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, Love Island with the emotions and things. Oh, so, yeah, the interesting thing is, like, there's 50 episodes, and they're for possibly eight weeks, maybe more. I actually do think that, like, things are really, str- like, strung out, and they let the story evolve compared to others where they're like, all right, chap, chap. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, they don't. You really like also. The producers like like, are a lot less involved. Yeah, I was wondering that actually. Are they drinking alcohol? So from what I had heard, they stopped giving them alcohol after a certain season. I don't remember if it was season four or not because I haven't seen season four. I am still a neophyte, but they don't. um, They don't drink in um, in Australian version. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, you know that could be a dangerous combo. I think, and I don't know if it was both seasons but i yeah but they used to drink a lot like in the first season well most reality shows i mean they're drunk yeah, all the well, time that was like so it's really kind of interesting that we were talking about birth right? <laughs> because i actually think that like i think it would be really fucked up but in a weird alternate reality where this wouldn't like cause neo-nazis to have like fodder i would love a birthright reality show because <laughs> it's 10 days these group of people yeah, like, don't know it each other. Is- and I mean, maybe not the like the younger groups, but like for us, maybe because we had cool leaders or whatever it was, maybe it's because I already knew plenty about Israel and I was very cynical about the whole thing. So I was just like, I'll break the rules and I don't care. But we drank almost every night. Mm-hmm. And even if you're not drinking, that trip, you get so little sleep on purpose, like a reality show. They sleep deprive you. They give you alcohol. They, they, put you at your most carnal state. And when I was saying I felt infantilized by like day seven of my birthright trip and it felt like high school again, that's what a reality show is. Oh my gosh. It literally is Jewish Love Island. Yeah. That's crazy. Cause you're so right. I mean, think about it. Like everyone couples up. Uh, So many people couple up. I was shocked that like for my trip that there wasn't that much of it. And then like, like a switch. Yeah. We have people still dating. Well, my, my friend, uh, met his fiance on that trip, and yeah, the joke we make the joke all the time about are they going to pay for it? Blah blah blah. Yeah, wait, um, that's so. Oh my gosh, literally, that's like a new thesis paper, or someone should do, <laughs> write about is like the similarities between birthright. Well, that's and part of why I went on that trip is I have this huge issue with how a lot of Jewish American culture is this like this very uncomfortable relationship with. Yes, we're all here to hook up. No, we're not here to hook up. Um, like I feel like there's a lot yeah. of 
there's a huge mixture of shame and discomfort and gen- then, then just like the humor around it where like so many people in their 20s and maybe 30s, well definitely 30s because then it's like, we've got to get married, oh no. But it, like in colleges, like people go to Jewish events because they want to meet people to yeah. go out with and date. And I also would love to meet a Jewish person to go out with and date, et cetera. But like, I want to go to a Jewish event to be around my people and do our, our culture together. And yeah. Someone, not just when it's a religious thing, I want to actually have like a spiritual moment where we get to be thoughtful. Um, and it's not about like purity. I don't want a machitza. I don't want any walls. I want it to, it to be egalitarian, but I just don't want my main, my, I don't want my modus operandi to be, I want to get laid tonight. Yeah. It's like a weird. <laughs> it's just so thirsty. Party. It's so yeah. thirsty. And when I moved back to New York, I was hounded by all these like new, like like millennial Jewish groups. Every synagogue oh. created a millennial group. They would partner together to make, and it's all terrible puns. Yeah. And I interviewed and, someone very in that world. And and yeah, and it's just like yeah, we're gonna do Shabbat in a bar. Ooh, which is literally the Jewish embodiment of that Steve Buscemi meme from uh, 30 Rock where he's the undercover student. He's like, hello, fellow kids. That's what that is to me. It's like, you can't just put Shabbat in a bar and think that, like, we're all down with this. But people still go because they're like, well, there are going to be singles there, right? Yeah. It's like, go to a speed dating thing if you want to hook up. And go to... Anything else, just to meet people. This kind of goes back to talking about loneliness. It's like, like, yeah, you know what? If you're two, like, super hot people, you could probably, like, hook up after that event and, like, it'll be, like, a fun one-night stand or whatever it is. But, honestly, it's always better to go to an event, to go out just to have fun and to enjoy yourself and enjoy your company, and it'll work out. Yeah. You'll meet someone, but you're calm. Like, you're just not on the prowl. Kind of like... In, I was just thinking about how Birthright is literally a reality show. I mean, I don't know if you did this, but at the last day of our Birthright, they we were all in like a class or in a um, auditorium, going around saying, you know, like what we took away, which was really mm-hmm. nice and like cute, and I actually enjoyed it. And then they're like, we're going to play a game now. Everyone stand in the middle, and we're going to say a really polarizing thing. And you go into one corner, whether yes, you strongly they agree. That, they did that on our second night. And it was one of those things. That, yeah, that's literally what they do in, like, The Bachelor. Yeah, like, so no, when you think of like Chelsea, show games. it was wild. But so <laughs> but so uh, when it goes back to Love Island, and I can tie anything for a while, but that amount of time that they give them there, and the, I guess the way the British reality TV, there's just, like, a different kind of attitude towards it but you look at someone like from season five you look at that guy michael he like he doesn't get picked up by any he doesn't get coupled up immediately and he's just chilling and he he's fine with it because the nature of love island michael's to an maybe, amber's old partner yeah okay yeah compared to maybe the bats or something where like really like it's a ticking clock all the time like yeah that's what they all know like, couples fans. i find the rules of love island which it feels like they make up a new rule every episode which is hilarious yeah, it's also, I mean, you could be there anywhere from one day to eight weeks. Well, look at Amber. Amber paired up with one person at one point. And it wasn't before the, the guy, Greg, that she ended up with and winning with, who mm-hmm. was the last person to come to the mm-hmm. island. She found out, like, they're 
it really is fascinating. Like there's, it's almost like the shittiest version of chess. It's just like, what is your strategy going to be? Like yeah, you people will couple up with you because time. you're friends and you both want to stay on the island. Um, you know, you can, and then those couples, like one person does get kicked off eventually and the other person doesn't. And or when they like have to kick off two people from different couples. and they do. Oh man. The worst was when, uh, that guy, Danny, uh, went through the whole drama with, Oh, I uh, love Danny. And, um, and that girl and then, showed and, up. Uh, uh, what's her name? The blonde he, one. She's like a supermodel, and she's gorgeous. And they, yeah, and, and like then Alessandra or something like that. And I they couple Danny. up, and then you want they literally like put a curse on them. Yeah, she's she like, was so what goes around comes around, and then she got kicked off, and Danny had to stay. Which is like, then he left though. Yes, be with her. Oh, loved him. I think he did. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay. The one thing well, I really loved nice. about this recent season of the Australian version is like the couple who won was so genuine like they i'm not gonna like spoil it but they paired up at like not a strategic time at all mm-hmm. and they're still dating and granted they, I mean, like, it, look, granted it was I mean, this summer so like ooh. i always i mean maybe not at the very beginning but like tommy and molly may like i mm-hmm. believe that one i'm pretty sure they're, they're still, still dating. together so is mara um, and mara and curtis just like I never really bought that, but like, more is an interesting person. Oh my, Fanny thought I can do it. She's really Irish. Um, (laughs) Can you do their accents? Kind of depends. Like British accents, but they're not even like British. Interesting. That's like the SNL skits. So funny. Well, so Maura and Greg are Irish, and then Yuande was Irish as well. Then uh, Anton was from Scotland, which I'll always butcher. I'm not even gonna try it. Um, The ones from like Essex. Yeah, and then, like, well, no, Amber's accent is really hard to do because it's, like, she's from Newcastle. And I really, like, I remember seeing Billy Elliot on Broadway and hearing them do the accents. And I was like, oh, man, they really need a better dialect coach. And then I watched Love Island, and Amber literally talks like the entire cast of, of Billy Elliot on Broadway. Oh, I'm going to go do the thing. Or like, I don't know. I don't like him, but Michael's being mean. That's so fun. And I'm like, God, I... I'm struggling to find you attractive now. Um, I like all the other accents, I guess. That's why the Australian one's just great. Or there was, and the, there was what a girl. What was her name? Oh, that was, no, I really loved how there was that girl, Belle, who was with Anton. Oh, and yeah. And her dad was literally, like, a cockney gangster <laughs> in movies. And, yeah, she talked like this. And, uh, I really like Anton, but sometimes he's a bit of a knob. And, like, oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. There was a girl on the Australian version who was British. I honestly couldn't. She was from London. <laughs> so she sounded Australian and they're all like, oh, I love her accent. I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's why I think I wish I could be on Love Island because it's like her accent. Jersey. <laughs> I I want to be in so many different types of reality shows, but I want to be this like, in, I want to have immunity for the whole show. Not because I want to win. Like you don't have to let me win. Just um, like so, you but I just don't think have it'd the be pressure of super funny if me with like super average body type, artists that like finds it hilarious and doesn't take it seriously is always there, <laughs> or like I would love to be on Project Runway where I can't make clothes, but I, so I like, always I just like always make the worst thing, but I'm just like around and it'd be a good social experiment, like a like punked meets Project Runway. Like, just, I mean, see how people react, especially something like Love Island. If I'm just always there and I get to be basically the OV of of the show, yeah. Well, but, I feel like with Love Island, though, I mean, some of them I'm like, 
with the Australian version, it was different because I was like, these people are generally drop dead beautiful. But like with the yeah, British version, then they're like, yes, yeah, exactly. But in the British version, I mean, like the oh my god, am Amy now? Like what they oh, look, yeah, they sure, look like cartoons. Just, well, that's pretty nuts. Yeah, I mean, or like all the makeup they put on. I'm like, does anyone really find oh, yeah. this attractive? Well, you, you watch that SNL parody <laughs> where it's like. I think I put so much bronzer on that I'm doing brown face. Yeah. Is this a hate crime? But it's like true. I, that I mean, in the Australian version, they don't spend nearly as much time getting ready, which is for better. Or it's for so worse. Australian too. It's like, no, like, I'm, I look good. I'm fine. I'm chill. Like, oh yeah, I don't have anything uh, on. It's like, oh okay, but no. And then there's oh, well, the American version was so shit. The American version just yeah, because they, they don't they don't believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, the flack is back. I just think it would be so funny if, like, um, you know, like, they're all doing all their sexy stuff and whatever, and I'm just, like, in the back, chilling, like, eating cereal. Like, oh, what's going on? Just some drama? Okay. Well, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm just always napping. I'm hanging out in the pool. I've got floaties on, because why not? Just, like, always being just around, enjoying a vacation. You got the salmon? I used to, I was trying to do that with someone. They're like, salmon. (laughs) Oh god, I love that show. I have the water thing, bottle. Something I oh yeah, I mean they're they're I'm I've now learned about a Visco girl, and they all seem to be drinking their hydro flasks on that show. So, do you know what a Visco girl is? No. I've learned this from my fifth and sixth grade students. It's the new kind of like. It's the new type of uh, girl stereotype amongst middle schoolers and I guess early high school the people who. I mean, I'm going to describe. I'm going to describe the things that make a Visco girl, and you're going to be like, "Oh, like that's just this generation's version of like popular." Girl. They're not popular, but like basic. They are basic, but in a very specific way. So the, the attributes that make up a Visco girl are like a weird affinity for like saving the turtles, <laughs> hydro flasks, being on the actual app Visco, which is an image editing yeah, app. Yeah, yeah. Um, scrunchies. Okay. Uh, it seems like 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 some kids like put their hands in a bag of things from the '90s and was like, "This is a type now." Yeah, but, I mean it's true though. And then like the the girl, it's the, the style. Skirt. The style is um, girls that wear oversized t-shirts with shorts. So it's kind of like a Billie Eilish thing. Um, it's huh. yeah, and it's just a weird. They, yeah, it's a weird new social group that also sounds like every other kind of like basic girls from all of all time uh just yeah. new technology but um but hydroflasks aside something i find really interesting about um love island uk that i doubt would have happened in the american one or maybe it would seem fake in the american one is, is sex? Hmm? Oh, so the sex like there's no like, oh in the american one yeah yeah probably not it's completely um, well i mean like we're so much more prudent than those countries mm-hmm. anyway but um no, is something I found really interesting was like, as someone that was in a fraternity, which I still don't understand how that happened, but whatever, like the guys, whether it's fake or not, or it is a symptom of that, like being stuck in a house together, their fraternity style friendship, their like camaraderie, their brotherhood. Yeah. Like, it's a highly gendered show. I get it. There's tons of problematic elements there, but if you're able to look past it, um, like the girls, like, Getting so close to each other and, and all like doing their makeup together. And like, and, yeah. The minute anything happens, like I love that that's the the show's kind of prerogative. Is like piece of drama happened, group together with all the girls. Come on, conference. Yeah. Um, 
all the guys, like, there, at least in season five, there was no guy drama for the most part. And so, like, yeah, it was like, well, like Tommy and, bros, um, and Curtis were like best friends. Yeah, and, and like, I'm yeah. like, really? And it reminds me of, especially because of the UK, it reminds me of when I was 16, I went on a team tour in Europe, and there was a very disproportionate amount of guys and girls. It was like 10 of us guys and like 30 girls. Yeah, like studying abroad. And I, I, I don't necessarily like to admit that I had a hand in causing this, but like we all got together at the beginning of the trip, like two days in, we had like a guys meeting. It was like, okay, so like who's interested in who? And it was so stupid, but like that's what Love Island is like. I mean, they We're literally just, like stand forward. <laughs> I'm gonna. It's like in the SNL skit. Like I'm gonna be this guy because of this is, and because and because I forget. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Love Island. 